Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Luke Hunt and this is another podcast for The Diplomat. And with me today is Rob Hamill from New Zealand. Rob is a, uh, he's a well-known politician. He was uh, a champion rower in the 1990s. He's better known as the brother of Kerry Hamill, who perished at S21 under the Khmer Rouge in the 1970s. Rob, welcome to the program. Thank you, Luke. I need to really clarify something here, mate. You've just thrown a red herring out there with the political nonsense. I thought you, I thought you stood as a Greens candidate. I did stand as the Greens candidate just to fill a space for the local area I lived in. And it was absolutely, it was not serious in any shape or form, other than to just promote the, uh, the message. But I will say I'll just... you did have a crack. And I oh, think, that, I did, I I think that's right. indicative of your personality because you came up here, you pursued the death of your brother mm. and you gave evidence as a part of the victims unit mm. before the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. Mm. And we're recording this today as news of the death of Nate Thayer, mm. a fantastic legendary journalist who was perhaps the only Westerner to ever interview Pol Pot. And, uh, he passed away this morning. Very sad. Rob, let's just go back to the start and uh, take us through what happened to Kerry all those years ago. So Kerry was uh, having his, um, what we call in Antipodean language, the OE, the Overseas Experience, and his version was to sail the seven seas. And he'd um, set himself up in Darwin after Cyclone Tracy, just working, um, developing a few businesses there to make a bit of money and got enough together to buy a yacht and set off uh, with a friend and his girlfriend in tow, and um, they they were sailing for nearly a year in Southeast Asia. The big plan was to, well, potentially circumnavigate, but certainly come back to New Zealand at some point on yep. his yacht. Uh, and unfortunately, they got, well, we think from what we little we know, they got caught in bad weather, got blown off course into Cambodian waters, uh, were anchored off an island called Kotang Island. This mm-hmm. is in August 1978. Kotang Island, about 30, 50 kilometres offshore. Quite a small island, if anyone knows Rangitoto Island off the coast of Auckland Harbour. It's about similar size. Uh, on the other side of that island was a Khmer Rouge naval gun base. They were attacked by a gunboat at that time. And uh, um, Kerry and my brother, well, Kerry's friend Stuart, uh, the Canadian, was shot and killed at that time. And my brother, along with an Englishman, uh, a, Jew, a, a paying passenger, a... Um, Mm. Um, were taken prisoner back to Torsling Prison, where they were tortured for a couple of months, uh, forced to sign confessions to being CIA, and then were executed. Now, just to clarify one point, because it's just a nagging implication that's been going around in certain circles for the last two decades, perhaps three, Mm. was that they were looking at smuggling marijuana. Is there Mm. any truth to that? Look, I'm aware there were sailors doing that, I've, I've heard the sure, and, there, and well. some of them were yes, captured think, and taken to S21 as well. Well, I'm not sure if any of the uh, the victims at S21 were smugglers, but I do I am aware that there was smuggling taking place mm-hmm. in the region uh, right. of Thailand and Malaysia and yeah that whole Southeast Asia area. Whether my brother was, don't know. All I can say is he was certainly wasn't at that point. I know he was he was on his way to Bangkok, um, so. Whether they were looking to pick something up in Bangkok, you know, I don't know. I mean, they, you know, <laughs> what does it matter? For right. me, personally, it doesn't matter. I, all right. I know is he wasn't smuggling at that time. Whether he was going to be bringing anything back from Bangkok, 
Who knows? And simply because someone was sailing into Bangkok doesn't mean they were looking at no, acquiring were... marijuana and uh, running it across the region, which is also okay. quite odd now, given that Thailand has legalised marijuana. Have they? So, you, know. you know, look, look mm. I'm, he was a young fella. Actually, no, he was in his 20s, mid-20s. That's young. Yeah, uh, well, I don't know, actually. And that's, uh, the, nowadays, there's a much younger travelling, backpacking kind of culture. Mm. But, you know, what they were doing back then was exceptionally adventurous, you know, yeah. going into... So Bangkok was uh, probably uh, a bit more of a mainstreamy sort of place for them to travel compared to where they were sailing. They were doing some extraordinary sailing in some incredibly pristine and remote locations that uh, you can only imagine what it was like sure. back then. Mm. Now, he, he died in horrendous circumstances, and uh, you were quite a bit younger. I was 14 when he went missing. Right, mm-hmm. and that must have been dreadfully hard on your parents and family. Yep, yep, my parents were, you know, he was missing for, uh, well, 16 months was the last time we had a letter from him. We, we, he communicated via yeah, sure. beautiful letters, and uh, we lived vicariously by those letters, and they stopped for 16 months, and we heard the news about what had happened. Of course, in the interim, there was, my father was writing to ports all around Asia, mm-hmm. trying to find out any news at all, and um, writing to friends, and just nothing and so they were beside themselves with worry about what might have happened but never would they have thought that right. what did actually happen when, when did they find out that he had uh, he was, it was killed a, in his 21 yes yeah, so it was around as I recall around December uh, 79 or January 1980 around, around December 79 and then it'd be another 20. 25 years before any sort of justice was rendered and yeah. the tribunal has only just been completed. Yeah. It's uh, a long time since then. The uh, genocide appeal was mm. dismissed for Q Sampan. He's the last of the surviving senior leaders from the Khmer yeah. Rouge and uh, you gave evidence against him. Well, Deutsch. Deutsch. Against Deutsch, but the, yeah. that evidence was then oh, taken. Oh, yes, taken and, through the next trial. Right. Yes. How, mm-hmm. What was it like to be sitting there in front of an international tribunal giving evidence against the man and staring at him, mm. staring him down, knowing that he was responsible for the fate of Kerry and yeah. others? And tens of thousands of others. Um, yeah, it was it was a it was an unusual. Um, I, 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 the first time I met him face to face was in the court, as you say, but he was it was I came in as a as a visiting guest, and I just arrived in Phnom Penh that morning. Mm-hmm. And our land Werner, our lawyer, said, "You've got to come down. Deutsch is in court. You need to see the court in action." And so during a recess, he whisked me into the actual courtroom itself, and uh, and I in a bit of a bustle, I went in and then. I stood in this, there were about the seats for about 10 people, um, guests I suppose you'd call them to sit, and I, then I looked up and there's Doik, or Deutsch, and he's looking right at me, <laughs> he's, giving me the, he's giving me the eye, and yep. um, I'll tell you, we, we locked horns, we absolutely locked horns, which I found very confronting for Khmer culture, that's very, and in his position of a, where he's supposedly very contrite and uh, seeking forgiveness to me a challenging you know he knew who I was straight away and uh, I found that really um, well not offensive but it it uh, it it made me re- re- rethink perhaps um, how I was feeling about his 
because I was feeling a re- I was trying to forgive. I went over there with a with a view to try and forgive, but this first, mm. and I, we held eye contact until he broke away. I reckon it was four or five seconds of, <laughs> you know, that's a long time. And um, yeah. and then a few days later, I testified, and we had a very similar situ- experience in that, during that court hearing as well. Were you relieved when he was? found guilty and then mm. his appeal was also dismissed and he died behind bars his appeal was dismissed but he, his, his sentence was increased to life sure. after the appeal yeah um, I, I, I was I was really surprised by a number of things in the actual sort of formal legal sense of the trial but actually talking through it more and I think it was you who talked we, when we had a meeting before this someone clarified some of the things for me but initially I had a concern about the prosecution asking for 40 years. Right. Bill, um, what was his name? Bill Australia. Smith. Bill Smith. He was one of the prosecutors. Yeah, one of the prosecutors, asking for 40 years. I understand now, but more because Deutsch had been so, uh, he had been relatively, I mean, he'd been, he was the only one who gave any information and was actually admitting guilt and was, and you know, so for guilt, you should be getting a, potentially a smaller sentence. Admitting some kind some of, sort of contrition remorse, right up contrition. until the last, I might just quickly add that the PJ, day. that right up until the last minute, and then Doig turns around and says, um, yeah. can I go home now? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm finished, I'm ready to go. Yeah, I, done my but, you know, the, yeah exactly, mm-hmm. it was qu- quite a startling moment. The last day of a, what was it, a nine month trial? Yep. But his, his lawyer, I think that was his Cambodian lawyer, mm-hmm. made that. I think he, he called that more than perhaps Deutsch. I'm not sure. I mean, I think the French lawyer, whoever his name was, I forget his name, but mm-hmm. he was, I think he was probably guided Deutsch quite well. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, but again, one of the, so initially the thing for me was um, the prosecution asking for a number. Why would you even ask for a number, I thought? Right. Why don't you just ask for life? I mean, for the rest of your living days. No. So when they gave, when the court handed down the sentence of, what was it, 24, 19 years to serve, given time served already and given some leniency for being uh, pleading guilty, 19 years to me seemed out mildly outrageous. A lot of people outrageous. were yeah. yeah. A lot of people were disappointed. They were like, <laughs> yeah. why? Yeah. Uh, it's genocide tribunal. Yeah, yeah 19, years. 19 years. But, yeah, on the face of it, absolutely. I kind of understand it better now, though. Mm. For the reasons just just discussed, but then, and this is the startling thing, the defence appealed it. <laughs> it was like it was like the best possible outcome they could have got, really, yeah. in the context of what had happened, and and of course then he got life. Yep. And look, I was surprised in some ways the prosecution appealed it too because they got better than what they asked for. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. Well, where was the sense in that? So anyway, look, it all worked out. Uh, it was kind of a convoluted process. It was at the time. I mean, there were, I remember back, well, God, we've been covering the, the tribunal for 20-odd oh. years, but uh, there was always a lot of uh, decisions that didn't seem to make sense. Mm-hmm. And hence my next question is that uh, it was uh, September that Q Sampan, his, his uh, appeal against the genocide <coughs> conviction was dismissed. He's the last of the senior leaders to still be alive. Uh, there was a, a report yesterday or the day before, I think, that uh, Q Sampan will be moved to a regular prison outside the military complex where they were all housed for, since the tribunal's inception, um, or since their arrest. How do, you, how do you view the tribunal now, looking back with a little more historical context? You know, I was aware at the time when we came over here in 2009, the, um, how it was really 
like the debate was raging. Some people were just really angry about how badly the court was being run and how corrupt it was and waste of money, you know, all these things. And the disputes between the international and the local international. judges, it was an unprecedented hybrid court. The, yeah, um, all that stuff. It was yep. so, it was really, I mean, from looking from the outside in, it was fascinating actually, the, the whole, the, the mechanisms that were taking place there and, um, yeah, the co-investigating judges doing their stuff and then the co-process, you know, all this and the complexity of it, I had to, it took me a bit to get my head around it all, I still haven't really, but certainly I was fascinated by the, the controversy of the court and I could have, you know how you get, you talk to people and you get influenced by those, mm-hmm. their opinions. And, you know, I have to admit, when I, it almost depended who I was talking to as to how I felt about the court in the moment, because you sort of, you hear a, a swaying voice that has some legitimacy and you go, oh, yeah, it's a bloody good one. And you talk to someone else, well, hang on, no, this thing's, this court has been fantastic for these reasons. You go, oh, yeah, that's there a good no point. shortage of judges and prosecutors and outside. lawyers walking around <laughs> with gravitas and oh, uh, yeah, most of, of them, all, they're, they're all gone now, they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're gone. and they're gone um, to the next uh, genocide trial. And they are happening. <laughs> yeah. I know there's a, there's actually a career in this sort of thing for the lawyers and, um, but uh, look, overall, Luke, I have to say that I, I think the court was an amazing uh, opportunity for the people of Cambodia to begin, let alone continue, to mm. begin a conversation about what took place. I think there's been a lot just swept under the, you know, just let's not talk Certainly about it. Certainly was. And home, you know, yep. home situation. And I witnessed myself the, you know, people setting up community um, meetings where, you know, victims were given a microphone and shouting, not just t- telling their story, but shouting and screaming with anger what happened to their family, what happened to them, the losses they incurred. And I, that's not a bad thing, I don't think, you know, to, to be able to express that because every time you see someone expressing that remorse or that hurt or that pain, sense of loss, the other victims had, would have had a sense of, strong sense of empathy for sure. those people. Go, oh my God, that, I felt, that's exactly how I felt too. It must have been quite liberating in the sense that you, you've always emotions that have been bottled up for so many years, and that includes all the victims, the Khmer Rouge, and to turn around and mm. be able to sort of like let loose and say mm. what you think. Yeah, and I don't, and I don't, heard. look, I don't know, and it's, so this, this took place nationwide. The right. court sent out, you know, mm. groups to just go out and coordinate all that stuff. Now this is, then Then there's the other discussion about, you know, the, uh, the genocide in Rwanda, which was that, um, what was that one called, where they did a slightly different forgiveness, mm. Uh, what was the, the truth called? and reconciliation? Truth and reconciliation. Yep. So you, the perpetrators could come out and say, "Look, this is what I did, and yes, I'm as guilty as sin. But if I didn't do that, I'd be dead today. I wouldn't be here today." You know, and then right. all these discussions and trying to understand perspectives the hierarchies and, and how the hierarchies, where, where yep. the uh, <coughs> the Khmer Rouge uh, they didn't care. They didn't admit anything. No. Not really. Not really. Deutsch um, again was the only one who's really. If I remember correctly, it was uh, Nun Chia and uh, Q San Pan were mm. quite happy to blame the Vietnamese, yes, the Americans. Yeah. It was everybody else's fault everybody but else's theirs. Fault. Yeah. And they were the only people here running the country. You know, we had a, um, we made a, when, we were, when I was testifying, we made a film called Brother Number One. Mm-hmm. And in that film we had, well, I don't know how we managed to swing it, but we managed to, well, we turned up at his house unannounced and he was asleep in a hammock. The, um, the 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 uh, admiral, the naval a- uh, navy Mayimut. admiral, Mayimut. Right. He 
it was perhaps the most, the most, uh, what's the term? Um, culpable. Culpable. Well, he was, my brother's he was a commander of the Navy and yeah. he was responsible for arresting Kerry and That's the right. others. There was three yeah. or four Westerners, Americans, yeah. Brits, and um, delivering them to S21. That's right. And uh, you could laugh at the confessions they signed if it wasn't such a, a tragic... Mm, mm. Uh, Huge creativity went into the... <laughs> it was. Uh, <laughs> one was signing off as uh, Daffy Duck, uh, yeah. Colonel Sanders. Yeah, my brother was... Uh, his, one of his head... His leading yep. uh, commanders was Colonel Sanders of KFC fame. <laughs> but I thought it was interesting. You know, look, so inspiring. Reading those confessions and Kerry's confession is just incredible. But I guess Mir Mutt, to me... He, he was the uh, he was the guy who I mean he talked about um, back to your point about Nunchia and Kassan mm. Pan their denial firstly of the Viet of the, it was all the Vietnamese fault and Mia Mutt confirmed that it was an outside perpetrator that committed these deaths not us not us and he said he said these words if if Pol Pot had still been charged today this country would be twenty times greater. Than it is now, and um, well, you, that's, you could argue. <laughs> well, no, I think he also said that uh, Pol Pot only killed a million people, only as, as opposed to the two or three million well, the, that had been um, yeah. uh, argued about. Yeah, what's a million between friends, eh? The interesting thing was, we challenged him on his, you know, if Pol Pot was such a great leader, how come these these lives were lost? How, mm. if you were such a, what, how did that happen? And the suggestion was two to three million lives. So he diverted the question by saying, well, hang on, it was less than a million. <laughs> and not really answering the question at all. I, I also remember um, the reasons why May Mut was not prosecuted is because in the overall scheme, he was ranked probably around 50, 50 to 60 really? in the that whole oh. hierarchy where the job of the tribunal was to try basically the top 20 senior leaders who sat on the standing and central committees mm. of the Communist Party. I, that's debatable. I, it's, I would have thought he was higher up the ranks than that, but yeah. I don't know. Yeah, maybe he was. It's I'm cold sure. comfort, mm. I guess. Well, it's disappointing. He was he was sledged, uh, slated to be the third trial right. at the ECCC, and he um, and I was... And he was recommended by the international prosecutors for... He was, to go to, 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 to his general trial. Before the do- yeah, that's right. I was the first to um, take him on as a, as a civil party, um, and it was uh, uh, an empty kind of a hollow gesture mm. the, at the end of the day because the, the, the national prosecuting judge who had the swaying vote uh, voted no, you shouldn't stand trial, which is disappointing. And it sends a really negative, it sends a really bad message to the world of, uh, to the sociopathic uh, warmongering community that you can get away with these things. Legislation has been passed to wind the tribunal down. I understand that uh, the evidence, which includes all the bones of two million people Mm. who were slaughtered or died of an array of diseases and starvation that they'll be cremated one evening and it'll be the final cleansing of Cambodia, Mm. of the Khmer Rouge. Where do you see Cambodia going? And for that matter, there's still the odd remnants of the Khmer Rouge around. Mm. I mean, is it just for the history books? Well, you know, this is the... the, um 
in some ways you could argue the ludicrousy of having a court where you've only got half a dozen people stand trial when there's thousands, tens of thousands with blood on their hands. Sure. You can't try tens of thousands of people, it's just not going to happen, unless you try and have that truth and reconciliation where everyone gets up and talks and honestly and openly with no, with, with vulnerability but with no, you know. Fear of repercussions, yeah. particularly legally. Yeah. And, and, and yet, you know, there's, there are there are victims and the per- the perpetrators are victims, you know. The ever <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, for example, in Tall Sling, and I don't know if many people know this, but most of the victims at Tall Sling were Khmer Rouge. You know? Sure, in the purge of the Eastern Zone, particularly later yeah. on, when uh, Pol Pot went the same way as many a totalitarian regime, they mm. clean out the. Uh, Opposition ranks, they clean out sure. people who... Um, Paranoia ranks. Yeah, the, mm. the journalists, the lawyers, the intellectuals, and then mm. once that's all done, they've got no one else to pick on, so they start turning on their own, which yeah. is... Uh, yeah. The Khmer Rouge were essentially based in the West, right. and there was a lot of animosity with the Eastern faction, which bordered Vietnam, and that's where the purges began. And yes, uh, uh, many a Khmer Rouge uh, perished mm. at S21 as well. Yeah, innocent. Seriously innocent, you know. Most of the victims there, I believe, are you know, innocent, or 99 Well, no one deserves to be treated no like they were. No. And, you know, there's... Uh, I tell, sorry, I just... I have a... I've just had a kind of... While you were talking, yeah. and I just need to voice this, you can cut it if need no, be. But, but one of the things, one of the reasons I'm back here now is because I've brought my family with me that's where I was going next, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, and I just wondered how they take it. Your children are growing up. Yeah, yeah, and they've sort of lived with the story of of my bro, and and now they are experiencing it firsthand, seeing Tall Sling S twenty one, visiting the killing fields, Chong Ek, and it's like what struck me is the questions that they've come up with as a result of this, because I had a lot of. We have a YouTube channel and we've been telling our followers that we're doing this for a long time now and finally it's happening. Well, as we closer we got to the number of naysayers that mm. came out of the world, you know, really well-meaning people who have been big supporters of, of our channel. We're sailing or attempting to sail around the world. <clears throat> and they came up with some things about, look, there's time for grief and there's a time just to move on, man. This mm. is not, this is, I don't know about this, you know, sort of really quite strongly negative. So I came here with quite a, an apprehension. I've done my thing, did it back in 09 mm. in the trial. Um, but bringing my teenage boys and my wife here was another story. But I tell you, the questions they had and have had, have still, uh, and we're talking, we are communicating about it the story, the Khmer Rouge, how it happened, why. What were some of the more out there questions <laughs> asked? Um, just why? Mm. Why did this happen? I don't get it. How could this be allowed to happen? You know, understanding human kind of sure. psychology, I suppose. And it may lead them into wanting to study it more further down the line, I don't know. But having that open dialogue is really great. And I think, again, back to those community gatherings, those people being able to talk about it would have stimulated discussions within their family. Each family, even if maybe their parents didn't stand there, they would have been in the crowd, they could go home and talk about it. And I think that's massive, man. I think that's the, the one biggest positive story that this trial has created. Sorry, back to what I, was, I felt as you were talking before. We had one experience going to mm-hmm. Tall Sling. We spent the whole day at Tall Sling, the audio tour there. If you do go, you must do the audio tour. It's fantastic. 
but we were numbed, you know, the emotion was minimal. And I said to the kids, look, there's no one way you are supposed to feel going through this place. Do not feel, you should feel in any way, shape or form the pain and the anguish and the sense of loneliness that Kerry and all those victims suffered in that hellhole. You don't have to, you won't, you probably won't feel anything like that because no one's standing over there whipping you, no one's got you in shackles, no one's pulling your toenails out, no one's electrocuting you. You're just experiencing what those certainly changed over the years. I mean, you know, in the early days, we were out there photographing, collating stories, getting it together for the tribunal, and it was still very much a crime scene. Mm. And I always remember being struck by the first time I was confronted by the baby tree, which yeah, is a big, thick tree, as you know, and mm. where they picked up babies by their legs and whacked their heads and just threw them into a pit. Mm. And now you go out there and uh, people are tying ribbons around the yeah. tree. I went out there with my mother and sister a few years ago mm. and uh, I was kind of delighted to see that. It, it mm. moved on to another phase and mm. I had one photograph of a, uh, a mother pushing a pram with a baby in the pram past the baby oh, tree yeah. just as they've dropped a ribbon off. I mm. thought it was a lovely... Mm. You know, symbolic is really powerful. Humans have moved on. Mm. Yeah, symbolism, ceremony. Yeah, it is good. I, look, I was deeply affected back in nine by that tree too. Couldn't mm. talk about it. And so we had this experience at Torsling. There's a certain amount of numbness. The very next day we went to Chongek, the killing fields. And it's there, and this is where I came come back to actually, where the emotion, we had questions, sure, after Torsling, but, and it was with another victim. Mm -hmm. where it all came out for the kids. Right. Uh, we met a guy called Sam Rithay. Okay. He wrote a book, he's out yeah. there selling the book. And we tried to communicate, my wife tried to say, hey, Rob is a victim like you, his brother was killed, blah, blah, blah. He didn't really, he was sort of nodding, didn't speak English, we don't, we don't speak Khmer. In the end, I pulled up a photo off the internet of myself standing in the court, which is clearly the court, and, and I showed him the photo. And honestly, the reaction, of this guy is really emotional. Um, he gave a little cry, a whimping cry, and tears just bloody floodgated out. And it was like a fellow, mm. you know, fellow victim. I, I'm just picking up on a point you mentioned before. Uh, I do tire of people who say it's time to get over it. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, I really, I, I kind of dismatch them with um, total. Um, <coughs> <coughs> sorry, pardon me. I don't think such traumatic events people actually do get over. One accepts and then moves on, and uh, you can forgive if you like. I prefer not to, I just never forget. But it's, it was an interesting take. Mm. Grief, is, grief is, you know, really, un, really, we don't really understand grief. And I will say there's the most, our culture doesn't deal with grief very well, mm. you know, Western culture. You go to Polynesia and Māori, Pacific Island cultures, mm. um, Number of any culture that's not that's third world, you could argue in some ways, understands and deals with grief better. Back in New Zealand, I used to go, I'd go into what's called a marae or treaty house where the tribe had their spiritual home, mm -hmm. and then you get welcomed onto the marae, and there'd be women, the wahini, there sitting at the at the entrance, wailing. Sometimes I've seen them. You know, I used to go, oh, here we go again, a long intro to get onto marae. I didn't really get it, but they were remembering lost ones, lost mm. loved ones, because grief 
never ends. It has a course to run, like all emotions. And it's a way to deal with it, you know, whereas we've got the stoic, don't show your emotion. You know, it's not, it's not healthy, I think. And that's why that moment at Chung Ek, seeing this Sumrathi mm. react the way he did, it was beautiful. It was like, he was, you know, we're brothers. When I left New Zealand in 2009 to go to the trial, I took some soil from our backyard, I took some sand from the beach out in front of our house, took some water from the river and the seawater, I lived at the river mouth of Whakatane River, put it all in one jar and I put it on the plane with me and we went to Tulsling after I testified mm-hmm. and had a monk um, bless the contents. Mm-hmm. We splayed some of the stuff around the grounds of Tulsling and then we went to an area just out to Tulsling where I'd interviewed a guard who said they witnessed a, a foreigner be uh, burnt alive. Right, made I stand know this case, and satellite, and that could have been Kerry. So, and we, I scattered the remains of the contents there. Okay, the no. point of that is symbolism and ceremony. I think has a role to play in grief. I think it's, I think it's important. You know, we've all lost loved ones, and it doesn't hurt to talk to them sometimes. Find a special place, a piece of jewellery. Find something that connects with your lost loved one, and verbalise. Talk to them. Do some sort of ceremony, light a candle, I don't know. But there's, and again, and again, this court process has, has allowed that to happen. Do you know what I mean? People are able to verbalise, to talk about it back in the home. So in 2023, Rob Hamill sounds like he's uh, got it pretty much together, dealt with much, and brought his family along now to sort of mm. share his brother's misadventures, I guess. Mm. Yeah, we all have misadventures. His just went so badly wrong, cost his life, you know. Just got in the wrong place at the wrong time. We just hopefully, you know, we, you know, taking my wife and children on this massive adventure into the unknown, you know, you prepare as well as you can and hope for the best that shit doesn't happen, you know. And where to next on the adventure? We had wanted to sail to Cambodia up through Southeast Asia. We've spent a couple of months in Indonesia, but we just ran out of time. We have a target. We want to get to Europe through the Suez Canal. We have to leave Southeast Asia at a certain time. We just realised we couldn't sail here. So we, 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 the boat is in Malaysia at the moment. We are sailing back, we're flying back in a couple of days' time. On that note, Rob Hamill, good luck with the, uh, with the sailing. Uh, I'm sure you'll take the spirit of your brother with you. Thank you. And I guess if anyone wants to follow us, <laughs> People may enjoy the journey. We've um, got a YouTube channel, The Cruising Kiwis, and um, on Instagram. But my, our, our sons actually have started a crazy channel on Instagram and um, and that horrible TikTok, actually, the Kiwi Boys. And they are going, it's, it's a lot of fun, but it's crazy. Rob Hamill, thank you very much. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Cheers, bro.